The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, November 18th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Throughout this entire ordeal, meeting the 20s, the 2020s, the boring down on us 20s, there's been a lack of leadership. And the leadership that we have has lacked certain necessities, like direction, vision, data, modeling good behavior, and empathy. So we sought out alternative leaders, governors, and we thought we found them on different coasts. Still, something was missing. For one, no one has mastered a good Andrew Cuomo impression. It's right there for the taking. The law is the law. He likes to, he really chews on his L's. The law. I can't do an impression. But you hear how it seems impressionable. It's right there for you impressionists. I violate the law, but uh, you can't. No. Nobody said you were above the law. Well, I'm a cop. I can have a couple of drinks and drive home. And if a buddy of mine stops me, no. Cuomo ended a press conference today by shouting at a reporter, and we will get to that. But first, let's check in on the West Coast, where Gavin Newsom, California governor, was revealed to have enjoyed a maskless meal at the restaurant, the French Laundry. Here is the Sacramento Bee's take on the wisdom of that meal. A meal at the famed French Laundry restaurant in Yonville costs around $350 per person, not including wine. It typically features nine courses, not counting the amuse-bouche which is a ritzy French term for appetizers. Well, it's actually a standard French term, like entree is a standard French term for main course. But the point is taken. This is an extremely bad example to set and does open the governor up for legitimate criticism and laundry puns. This stuffed shirt would be hard-pressed to escape from this news cycle, not at least lightly soiled. Okay, but when you think about it, all the tools a leader has in this fight are tools of persuasion. And the tools of persuasion are showing empathy, mastering facts, and modeling behavior. That's really it. There are some funds available and a leader can make right or wrong choices about resources. You could argue the aforementioned Andrew Cuomo made some wrong choices along the way, but mostly it's about messaging. And the message is simple. Do the right thing. Wear a mask. Don't congregate in large groups indoors. And when you don't do those things, And when you're not doing them in the presence of everyone by eating at, say, an Arby's, it's bad. When the place you're doing it is one of the fanciest restaurants in America and your guest at the meal or maybe his guest is a huge lobbyist for the state, you certainly erode your power. Now, it's not, as I mentioned before, it's not as if Cuomo's been perfect. Cases in New York are on the rise, like they are everywhere. And Cuomo has critics who point out that cases are on the rise. And he has a counterpoint, like they are everywhere. So at his news conference today, it ended with a reporter just flat out accusing him of failure. Your, your microcluster strategy well, is not working at this point to curb the statewide spread. What do you have to say about that? Cuomo, having none of it, he was walking out at the time. So this is why it looked like he was standing up behind the podium and just yelling at a reporter who was making his point, And here's how he did it. Let's talk fact. The whole world is going up, right? The whole world. Every state in the nation is going up, right? 
So success becomes what? How you're doing relative to everybody else. That's how, what success becomes. Success is not, are you defined reality? Excuse me. Are you defying reality? It's how are you doing compared to everybody else? We are fourth in the United States of America. Come to me with anything else that we're fourth in the United States of America after having had the highest infection rate in the United States of America. New Yorkers are doing a great job. McCullough said New York is fourth. Maybe you heard a sound afterwards. It was him clicking onto a slide, and the slide showed the bottom five states in the nation in terms of infection, and indeed, New York is fourth lowest. Some people won't like that answer. Uh, People would definitely not like that he constantly feuds with the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, but he had the facts right there at his disposal, and there is no ancillary distraction of the Cuomo family gathering indoors or having a Thanksgiving as he tells his citizens not to have a big Thanksgiving. He's not modeling poor behavior. Leadership is like weight loss or saving for retirement or sobriety. It's not mystical. It's not esoteric. It's just hard to do day in, day out. And even when you do it right, it sometimes seems like you're doing it wrong. But take it one day at a time, as they say in one of those endeavors, and eventually a good leader will be able to best make his or her case and then hope that the people respond and rise to the bar that the leader has set. On the show today, when the legal exercise of rights is wrong. But first, from the French laundry to the French quandary. Conservative writer David French is a chronicler of the right and left in this nation as a whole, and he finds that it's not operating that way, i.e. as a whole. Yesterday, we talked about some of the issues causing division. Today, we talk about some of the solutions, or at least frameworks, for solution. Divided we fall, America's secession threat, and how to restore our nation by David French up next. Yesterday, in my conversation with David French, we discussed the fractures undergirding the country, which provides the premise of his book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Today, I wanted to ask David about the idea of pluralism, an idea I always cite as a good way forward, knowing that others have their beliefs and agendas, and when they control some power, they get to enact on those beliefs and agendas, just like when you control some power. You do too. It's probably best not to fight the idea that others want their way to some extent. So pluralism seems good to me because it accommodates your views and their views. The problem is, as a lived reality, people don't like the part of pluralism that accommodates their views. So I asked David if he thought that in the abstract, Americans like pluralism as an ideal, but are less into pluralism as a lived reality. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that there are a lot of Americans who are into pluralism as a tactic. So Mm -hmm. if you feel as if you are on the losing side, for example, of a cultural battle, of a political battle, then that's when a lot of people really like federalism. That's when people really like free speech or free exercise of religion. When you feel like you're the one on the outside is when often you're really wrapping your arms around pluralism because one of the principles of pluralism 
is that essentially that even if you're a loser of a political contest, even if you're a loser of a cultural contest, you can still have a place. You still have a home. You can still live and raise your family and thrive in a community, even if you're in the out group. Uh, and so a lot of folks who worry about being in the out group, when they do really worry about being in the out group, they, as a tactic often, rather than so much as a dedication to principle, default into pluralism. And that's sort of a persistent pattern in American history that people will sort of say, okay, well, I, I'm really worried about you people dominating my life. Can you at least agree to accommodate me? Can't you accommodate mm -hmm. me? But commitment to pluralism as a goal sort of is the overarching structure of our country and our culture. That's a little bit more rare. I think I have it, but sometimes I question myself. Sometimes it's yeah. more like, well, I decry tribalism, but every once in a while, my tribe is ascendant, and uh, I could certainly live with that more than pluralism. Are there things that we have to do if we do believe in letting uh, the other side or those we this disagree with or those factions that aren't our factions have gains? If we agree with that, are there things that we have to give up on our side to best embody the ideals of pluralism? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we do is we, I think we have to do, and what I talk about in the book is we have to give up on nationalizing everything so that a defeat for conservatism somewhere is not a defeat for conservatism everywhere. <laughs> a defeat mm -hmm. for progressivism somewhere is not a defeat for progressivism everywhere. And so, you know, my, my standpoint is that the principled pluralist will say, well, we'll have a couple of sort of common commitments. The principal pluralist, one, will say that there is an irreducible level of human rights and individual liberties that we all should enjoy as Americans, that pluralism doesn't extend so far as to say California gets to be actually repressive of minorities or Tennessee gets to be actually repressive of minorities. In other words, so there's a common commitment to the Bill of Rights, to individual liberty, to due process, to sort of this core elements of the social compact and American social compact and the Bill of Rights and the Civil War Amendments, that we're going to be all committed to that. But at the same time, we're also going to be committed to granting different communities the ability, a greater and ever greater ability to shape their politics and their culture and their cities and their states according to their core values. So that you know, the shorthand way of saying it is sort of let California be California, let Tennessee be Tennessee, so long as Tennessee is not denying the First Amendment rights of its citizens, so long as California isn't denying, say, the Fifth Amendment rights of its citizens, with this common commitment to the Bill of Rights, there's then a lot of variability in environmental policy, in economic policy, in, in taxation, in even in, in some of the ways we deal with immigration. There's reasons for, to allow a, a, a large amount of difference. But that's hard. That's hard. And in, in my book, I chronicle how both sides of our political spectrum really do double down on federalism as a defensive tactic when they're out of power and really scorn federalism once they have power. Right. So an example of pluralism working where different areas, different states might have different laws might be something like the tax code. Uh, you in Tennessee might, uh, or let's take a state without even state income taxes. Someone in Texas might look at Massachusetts if they want to be a good pluralist and say, I guess it works for them having those high taxes, maybe a lot of government services, and a pluralist in Massachusetts might say the same about Texas. But what about 
couple issues that you and I uh, feel passionately about, gun rights and abortion. I would look at a southern state banning or de facto banning abortion based on, say, admitting privileges to hospitals as not, well, you got to let Louisiana be Louisiana. You know, I look at it as you're denying reproductive rights to women. I'm not sure you look at New York City's compared to Tennessee standards, onerous gun laws in the same way, but maybe you do. So is this just the issue of, well, now we're debating what's a constitutional and human right? Yeah. And look, one of the things, because I've been talking about this issue to a lot of smart folks who are more left to me, and I say, my formula of saying here is, here are these fundamental human rights that have to be respected from state to state. And then here are the policies where there can be an extreme degree of variability. So one of the things I talk about in the book is, how if California went to single payer, how in an interesting way that could really resurrect federalism across the country because of the legal changes necessary to allow California to have single payer health care. That doesn't mean that this is a frictionless system that I'm talking about. And you hit on the two big issues, abortion and gun rights, where there would be a lot of friction. You know, I've, I've been talking a lot about constitutional law ever since uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And I'm reminded of one of the things that she said in a 1992 Law Review article about the Roe v. Wade decision. She thought that America and, and the position of the court would be very different if the scope of the decision in Roe versus Wade was less, and this is the word that she used, breathtaking, that at mm-hmm. one stroke it swept away in the vast majority of state regulation of abortion. And the interesting thing is, if you look at what would happen if Roe were overturned and the majority of state regulation of abortion would return to the states, the actual effect on the abortion rate in the United States is not nearly as much as people would imagine, because the states have widely varying approaches to abortion, and people are mobile. They can drive to a place that has a different approach. But yeah, I think there are issues, and gun rights is another one, where there's going to be friction. There's going to be disagreement. Pro-life and pro-choice folks are going to have real disagreement. People who support greater gun rights versus those who seek greater gun restrictions, there's going to be friction. So the call to pluralism is not a call to a frictionless utopianism. (laughs) It's... It's much more, I, I like the way that the pseudonym, pseudonymous writer uh, Scott Alexander framed it. He says, pluralism or class or liberalism, small l liberalism, is the greatest civil war avoidance device ever created by the mind of man. It's not utopian. It's a way that we can live together, not frictionless, not frictionless, yeah. but in a way that's sustainable. What about the racial component and, you know, to channel great thinkers, oppression anywhere and slavery anywhere is slavery everywhere. So maybe it's not slavery, but I guess you could make the argument that uh, extremely pluralistic society would allow slavery in states that make it. I don't want to be that incendiary, but let's just be um, reasonable and realistic about racial policies of different places. Uh, should extra attention be given if certain places are, you know, more oppressive and repressive in terms of their black population? If people from outside those places look at, I don't know, incarceration rates in the Deep South and are aggrieved and want them to change, should then what we should say as well, a good pluralist would say back off. That's how those states want it. Well, this is the area where the Bill of Rights aspect of my uh, argument comes directly into play. So I don't idealize federalism because I know that federalism has actually been a means of oppression 
particularly in the in the race in the category of race. So you had slavery followed by Jim Crow, and you have this sort of cry of states' rights. I mean, there was even a Confederate general whose name was states' rights. But states' rights has long been the cry of the slaver and the segregationist. I believe he faced off with the Union General Export-Import Bank Porter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, if you look at the, the examples of extreme marginalization in the history of the United States of America— Again and again and again, it has come about as a result of the systematic deprivation of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. And this is an area in which I think that federalism is toxic. And, and this is where the founders, I think, had a flaw in the drafting of the Constitution. The Bill of Rights were drafted, and as drafted, only restrained the federal government. They did not restrain the state governments. And the state governments had wide latitude and wide authority, as we saw to restrict fundamental human rights and individual liberty. The Civil War amendments were the measure to try to correct that, to extend the privileges or immunities of citizenship, equal protection of the laws to all Americans. And so one of the things that we see, for example, um, let's just take the police abuse issue. If you look at what's happening in so many of these instances of police abuse, whether it's a, the George Floyd killing or whether it's policing for profit, uh, the rampant abuse of civil asset forfeiture, abuse of cash bail. We can go through no-knock raids. We can go through and show point by point by point how those, those doctrines, which have so disproportionately impacted marginalized American communities, really undercut and in many cases are dramatically contradicted by the letter and spirit of the Bill of Rights. And yet... Judicial majorities, often acting under sort of the war on drugs mantra, have pulled back and pared back the application of the Bill of Rights. And one of the things that I say to my sort of fellow constitutional conservatives is, shouldn't we care about Amendments 4 and 8 just as much as we care about Amendments 1 and 2? The Third Amendment's pretty fine. Quartering of truth <laughs> doesn't come up that much, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't come up. But Amendments 4 through 8, you know, you're talking about unreasonable search and seizure. You're talking about cruel and unusual punishment. You're talking about, you know, rights of due process, you know, no deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process. All of these things, a rigorous protection of the Bill of Rights is going to ameliorate the worst effects of injustice. Now, that doesn't mean that one state or the other might not have a better education policy or a better healthcare policy. Part of pluralism is essentially saying, I'm going to consent to state X having a healthcare policy that I think is inferior, but I'm going, mm -hmm. my state is going to have a healthcare policy that's superior. But what we have right now with gridlock in Washington and with the incredible um, toxic polarization and the paralysis of our democracy is what we end up saying is nobody gets anything now. And to the extent you get anything, it's often a regulatory change that a next president can immediately reverse or an executive order that's vaporware, it's gone with the next court injunction. And so we're snarling at each other looking for these competing national solutions that aren't attainable, that they're not attainable. But the very active arguing for them for the unattainable often raises the national temperature to an unacceptable level.
So the last question I'll ask you, I've interviewed a lot of, let's call them Republican apostates, people who were never or anti-Trump. And who knows, you could tell me if you feel that the party will ever uh, have something for you or you for it. But what I asked them is when they defected, publicly declared they were anti-Trump, what else came with it besides the things directly related to Trump? And they have different answers. You know, Max Boot has this narrative of essentially scales falling from his eyes. And really, I can't believe that I believed in that whole mindset. Whereas David Frum said, you know, his big issues were his issues. And there were other ancillary issues that are required if you're going to put together a big coalition. So for him, he was very into immigration. He never really thought that much about guns. Once he defected from Republicanism under Trump, he could really articulate a gun policy that was much more like a Democrat's gun policy. So I'm going to ask the same question to you. When you publicly made your declaration, were there any other attendant issues that you changed? on, not specifically because of your opposition to Donald Trump and Trumpism. I'm much more of the category that says I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. You know, on a lot of these core issues that have defined my career, really, like being pro-life in support of religious liberty, these things have remained. And interestingly enough, it's one of the reasons why I've gotten so much vicious incoming, (laughs) because... The story told to conservative voters is if you maintain your commitment to the issues like that I've maintained commitment to, Trump is your only alternative. That's the only guy you can support. And then they look at people who have had sort of that scales fall from their eyes narrative, like say a a Max Boot, a guy I know and I like a lot. And they say, see, he's not really, his objection isn't Trump. His objection is your values. He doesn't share Mm -hmm. your values anymore. And so- my position has been on these really core fundamental issues regarding debt and deficits, regarding international alliances. I've been a strong supporter of NATO and America's forward presence overseas and support of social conservatism. All of those things have have remained, but I just utterly reject Donald Trump as their champion, just completely reject that. And so now that's not to say I haven't altered my position on specific issues or I haven't really had my eyes open on some specific issues. And the one where I've had my eyes open to a great extent is the issue of police violence in the issue of systematic police violations of civil rights and its disruptive effect on the American body politic. I mean, I'm a guy who grew up sort of in the law and order Republican tradition. That was sort of the you know background culture in which I grew up. But I was also a civil libertarian. And those two things were in real tension with each other. And one of them honestly had to give. <laughs> And, and what had to give was this sort of reflexive defense of law enforcement was completely inconsistent with a civil libertarian commitment to the Bill of Rights. And so I have become a strong advocate of uh, prison reform, opponent of mass incarceration, strong advocate of police reform. I think these things are critically important to repairing the American social fabric. And, and they're also, as a social conservative, critically important to repairing the American family. You know, if a guy has been pulled into the criminal justice system at a young age, they're not as employable as they could be. When they're not as employable as they could be, it's harder to, to build and sustain a stable family relationship. I mean, these things are very, very linked. And so that is definitely an area where I've had competing values and one set one out over the other. 
David French is an editor at The Dispatch. He is the author of Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Thanks so much, David. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And now the spiel. Let's talk about rights right now. Americans are proud of rights, but don't understand them, or sometimes they twist their understanding to suit their purposes. Maybe a little bit of both. It's called motivated reasoning, and that is our right as thinkers. Mostly I'm going to talk about right-wing arguments that are self-serving and dangerous on the issue of guns, and I will get there. But one example of how we all twist a little bit of the notion of rights is right before us with the mask argument. So it is correct, it is proper to use masks to stop the spread of the virus. And the objections to using masks are stupid. They work. They're not an infringement to anyone's rights. But when someone, a misguided someone, asserts, it's my right not to wear a mask, you'll always hear this in response. It's not about your right. It's about my safety. Okay, that's true, but the framing is wrong. Because just about every right boils down to that calculation. You can't dismiss every right by saying, oh, it's about my safety. But safety is not a proper get-out clause for the exercise of a right. Take the right to free speech. Maybe my right to speak is in tension with your right to safety, meaning you have a right not to be threatened by fighting words or some argue these days, not to be excessively offended. And that's where we have to dig in and we have to really figure out where the rights to speech end and the right to safety begins. A newspaper's right to publish is in tension with the government, which may argue that what they're publishing is a threat to national security or to public safety. There are exceptions to freedom of religion that are safety exceptions, as in a Christian scientist who doesn't want to get a necessary medical procedure for a child. So it's not about your freedom. It's about my safety. All it does is articulate the inherent tension with rights. The better way to say that or think about that is your freedom, as you define it, needs to be subordinate to my safety in this case for the following reasons. And mostly people will say, because you really have no right to freedom in this sense, but there is a little bit of right to freedom not to be compelled to do things. So the proper argument is whatever right you have to the freedom of not to wear a mask is infinitesimal when compared to this collective societal project of trying to tamp down the coronavirus. This brings me to the topic I really wanted to discuss, which is open carry. Open carry is omnipresent if a little tucked inside the biggest stories of today. A crowd of them, many carrying firearms, turned up to a counting office in Maricopa County to show their anger. French TV noted the open carry exhibited by Trump balloting protesters in passing, CBS documented the prudent countermeasures of law enforcement. The protests were largely peaceful, but police dressed in full tactical gear blocked entries to ensure the safety of those counting votes inside. They escorted employees to their cars once their shift was over. About a third of the crowd appeared to be armed. Open carry advocates will argue they are within their rights. And when asked, why did you bring your gun? They answer, I'm exercising my Second Amendment rights. 
Hmm. There is, in fact, an entire genre of YouTube video in which gun enthusiasts, Second Amendment enthusiasts, purposefully engage with law enforcement to see if the police allow them to carry their guns out in the open. Well, it's a Second Amendment audit. A Second Amendment audit. That tape is from Oklahoma, where it was conducted by a citizen toting what looks like an assault rifle, but technically isn't due to grip placement. Police approach him because he's standing in a park holding a massive weapon, and then he explains the technicalities of his weapon that makes it legal to possess. The buttstock, what would you call what would call a buttstock, that makes it a pistol with a shortened barrel. Okay. So if you had a a, a um buttstock like yours on there without the strap that that would make it a rifle so with the buttstock that i have it on it there it is designed to be held with one hand oh because you put it yes and that makes it a pistol the four cops who are all white guys with buzz cuts i think three of the four buzz cuts surround him they're polite they seem genuinely curious they're looking at their phones oh that's where the stock is that's where the trigger is and they're learning about the intricacies of the weapon But then one asks him what seems to be a really, really obvious question. So we've been through this in Tulsa, and we're making it around to the major cities. So So why don't you do something better instead of showing up at the park with Mm -hmm. something that looks like a rifle? Do a YouTube educational vehicle video and get a lot of people to do it. Go to the news and say, hey, Mm -hmm. this is a pistol, not a rifle, instead of causing hysteria at a park. That's what we're hoping to do, hoping to educate people through our videos. like, I understand, mm-hmm. like, you got a Second Amendment, but you got to mm-hmm. understand, when we get a pistol at a park or rifle call, we start running code. So now, mm-hmm. because of your wanting to do a Second Amendment audit, you put all these other people at risk for us running code to get here. The cop tries to talk to him, law enforcement to law, let's say, enthusiast. Hey, you know what? Maybe showing up in a park with a gun that scares the bejesus out of everyone here, that causes me to respond by training my weapon on you. Maybe that's not the best move. Or call us. Hey, I'm going to be at the park walking around with my rifle or my Mm -hmm. pistol that looks like a rifle just to give you a heads up. Yeah, we could do that in the future. We could do that. It's nice that the gun enthusiast seems to see the wisdom of this, of not showing up with a long gun in a public setting, which scares everyone, could get him killed. But mainly what he wants to do is assert his right to have that gun, which is why he posted the video ultimately. And that's why the video, I guess, has got almost 2 million views and why the gun community makes heroes and martyrs out of these guys who do Second Amendment audits. Now, by martyrs, I don't mean any one of them has resulted in death, but Second Amendment auditors have been arrested, have been found guilty, have been subject to fines and detention a lot of times law enforcement in a local community defines your rights differently than you might. A similar instinct is animating the gun toters in public at Trump recount rallies or just Trump protest rallies. When asked, why'd you bring your gun? The answer that I've seen so often is, so I can exercise my Second Amendment rights. It's circular reasoning. It actually answers a different question also. The question, if it were, why can you have a gun here? The answer is, in an exercise of Second Amendment rights. But exercising a right doesn't explain why you're exercising that right. We have a right to religion. But if I begin to worship Satan and say so every day on the gist or at a street corner, and you say, why are you worshiping Satan? A stupid answer is because I can worship Satan, because the First Amendment freedom of religion gives me the right to worship Satan. Obviously, I'm worshiping Satan to get something out of it, the Dark Lord's power within me. Saying I'm toting my gun to exercise my right is no different from answering, why did you call those people racial slurs? Oh, it's just because I want to exercise my right. 
I want to make a point about freedom of speech. So I say things I don't believe in. Now, you exercise your right for an effect, to get an effect. The effect isn't the circularity of exercising a right. So why do, in many states that allow it, why do gun owners take their guns to rallies? Obviously, it seems obvious to me, it's to intimidate. I'm not going to get into issues of psychological inadequacy, but a gun makes someone harder to argue with. Only if you think about it, I think it actually hurts the argument. If you need your gun to make your point, maybe your point's not that great. I do not think the Trump protesters have a point. I think there's something cultish about them. But an unarmed mass protest, protesting something that I don't much agree with, I don't know, it does have high stakes in this instant, but an unarmed mass protest against something that doesn't deserve protest, in my opinion, well, I would call that mistaken. But when that mass is armed, it's something worse than mistaken. It's dangerous. And I think it becomes even more incumbent upon the rest of us to discredit them. Though what they've done, I'm arguing, is they've discredited themselves. In the gun community, there is a saying, a right unexercised is a right lost. I would counter, a gun brandished is an argument lost. If you can't make arguments that win the day without making the other side fear for their lives, then you can't make arguments that win the day. If I brought some debating points to a gunfight, I'd lose. When they bring guns to what should be a civic debate, they're telling everyone beforehand that they have the point of view that is off target. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the producer of The Gist. She has urged all New Yorkers not to dine in large numbers in French restaurants that serve Perrier, a fancy French word for salsa. Daniel Schrader, Gist producer, says that Gavin Newsom may want to try the following argument. But I had a coupon! I'm getting very Jewy in the credits today. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, wonders if the plural of pluralism is plural as I. The Gist. Hold on, let me get into character. Filled with rage then, Billy Joe reached for his gun to draw. But the stranger drew his gun and fired before he even saw. As Billy Joe fell to the ground, the crowd all gathered round. As crowds are wont to do, and they heard Billy Joe's final words. Oomperu depru And thanks for listening.